the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, episode number 68. My name is Dominic. I'm one of the hosts of the show. The other host's name is Janus, and he will be with us shortly. Today we had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Mr. Ronnie Pontiac, who is the author of The Magic of the Orphic Hymns, a new translation for the modern mystic, and we'll be discussing that book with him. Ronnie is an award-winning documentary producer, author, philosopher, musician, he plays guitar for the experimental rock band Lucid Nation and worked as Manly P. Hall's research assistant, screener, and designated substitute lecturer for seven years. You can find him at the Ronnie Pontiac on Instagram. This was an absolutely fantastic discussion. I'm really happy with how it turned out, and I'm willing to bet you're going to like it. Before we jump into the show, I just want to say thank you to our Patreon supporters. We really do appreciate the support. You help keep this show running, and your partnership is important to us. If you would like to become a partner and help keep the lights on and the discussions flowing, feel free to head over to Patreon and do what feels right for you. We dedicate this to Hermes and Asclepius. May any merits that we accumulate doing this work be distributed to all sentient beings so that they, together with us, may equally realize awakening. Welcome to the show. We are super excited to have our guest on today and speak to him. His name is Ronnie Pontiac, and he is the co-author of the new book, The Magic of the Orphic Hymns, a new translation for the modern mystic. Um, This is going to be great. Thanks for coming on, Ronnie. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Our pleasure. Absolutely. And as we do with our guests, we're going to start out with just some basic questions about yourself just to get the audience oriented. And um, and we'll go from there. So if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about yourself and then maybe transition into how you specifically got into this topic. And then we'll, we'll go from there. Well, I was um, Manley Hall's research assistant for seven years. And I was privileged to often get to work with him on a daily basis. 
one of the last projects that I did with him after he asked me to leave because he could foresee that his own ending and the ensuing power struggle at Philosophical Research Society would be something that he didn't want myself or my wife, Tamara, who was his friend, to uh, have to go through. And one of the last projects that we worked on was his uh, republication of the Thomas Taylor translation of the hymns of Orpheus. So this had great meaning to Tamara and to me. And we were in a position where we couldn't really leave this place that we loved, this sanctuary, in the way that we would like to, which is to talk to everybody and give them our love and our phone numbers and keep in touch and all of that, because what he had told us was so dark. And we didn't want to go around PRS saying, um, you know, Mr. Hall thinks he's going to die soon and there's going to be a big, horrible power struggle. And most of the other people who run the place will probably not survive him for long. And it would just put us into a very awkward position. So we sought some way to express to the universe our gratitude, like a blessing that we could somehow do on PRS and on Manly Hall, on Marie Hall. And we were also guided by him, or I was, to go back into music, which is where I had come from. And so it seemed appropriate to commence this new uh, approach to music, especially because I felt that I needed to make up for what I had been before uh, when I was a teenager fronting a nihilist, racist band uh, with uh, biker security guards and violence surrounded everything that we did. I was a really a criminal uh, kind of character, very devoted to the lie. And uh, when I studied anything that was esoteric, which was along the lines of Crowley, Spare, LeVay, uh, Evola, um, I didn't, I thought they were romantic and that they were um, idealists. And I held them in contempt because I was searching for absolute nihilism and and certainty of the doom of humanity at any moment. And to my surprise, I found a lot of people liked that approach. And so having done that, and then having had the incredible blessing of working with Manly Hall and, and learning and evolving and becoming a civilized human being, I... I thought maybe this was a good thing to do, a kind of purification of, of what I had done before and a dedication to do something that was higher. And so Tamara and I decided to do our own translation, essentially. We went back to the original Greek, which was a little disappointing because if you know the hymns, you know that they're very repetitive and they're short on detail. Now they're filled with inner meanings several levels of them. And Thomas Taylor and others uh, have pointed out how, just how complex these, these cosmogenies are and, and what they reflect as far as what Neoplatonists later developed into their philosophy. And, and, and which has informed, as Bertrand Russell said, through Plato, Orphism informed all of the history of, of religion and philosophy in the West. And so we approached it as something that, that we, wanted to, we wanted to bring a familiarity with the deities to it. And we didn't want to be a compendium of traditional correspondences, even though we studied them. We didn't want to give strict uh, rules to people about 
um, you need to do it this way at this hour at this, even though that's delightful and powerful. And I highly recommend it to people, but that exists. And uh, for instance, Patrick Dunn's work, his book on the Orphic Hymns is a wonderful compendium of all those details and correspondences. And you've got Athanasicus, uh, who's the world expert, and his translation is the standard in academia. And his footnotes are a treasure trove of information about these subjects. Absolutely. But we wanted, right? And we wanted to put them into the into the hymns themselves in subtle ways without without becoming obvious. We just wanted to give flavor to the hymns so that you could do the rest. And we were thinking of Agrippa, who had who had referred to them as really the best place to start to learn about how to do this magic stuff and how to create your own rituals. But he recommended that that we all write our own hymns to these gods, that we didn't need to do the originals, that we needed our own relationships and the correspondences that the gods may have manifested in our lives would speak to us in, in terms of who it is exactly that we want to address and what things remind us of the sacredness of that communication. And so, and we wanted to make it accessible. That was another thing. We, we had learned from Manly Hall, something that I, I prized about him greatly is his, his really deep concern for reaching people who may not have the equipment to get this information from academia or for that matter, from the occult side of it, which is every bit as as uh, rigorous intellectually in many ways as the academic side. And, and if I so- might, if, mm-hmm. you, if you don't mind, I'm sorry Please. to interrupt. But um, if I might, the um, the ultimate aim is, yeah, you want to get this out to people who might not have access to it. But then the aim is to use them to get the the spiritual knowledge you use the you use things like the Orphic hymns to then access spiritual or transcendental knowledge, which is passed should be passed to you from the the series of the gods and daimons that will respond, and then you acquire true knowledge from the practice. Exactly, it's it's like what they call in the uh, in the Chinese Taoist practice the secret of the golden flower. They have a term called the hundred days. And the practice of the hundred days is to get you acquainted with having the relationship with what they call the higher soul or the higher spirit. And, and this is to me the same meaning in, in Orphism and in the theurgic tradition. And in some ways, I think of theurgy as the, um, the survival of the mysteries through the personalization of the cult. So that rather than it being a big public event, you are gathering uh, in small groups or even as a solo practitioner. And, Very well put. Mm-hmm. And I think that that the connection that's described there, and this is another thing I value greatly about Manley Hall, was that he he really emphasized in his work that because what we discover in the traditions of the world about these matters is so different due to the time and place, the languages and all the peculiarities that those bring into trying to understand what someone is conveying. But he always emphasized that at the heart of all these teachings, we would find the same basic practices and beliefs because these things are 
how we are made up. It is our occult anatomy, if you will, and our our spiritual uh, uh, heritage as human beings is to to realize these things and to remember them. And so, of course, they resemble each other, and all these paths are similar. And uh, those who like to follow true eclectics, like Manly Hall was, who like to go deeply into a variety of paths, I think they have a kind of advantage in some ways, because you do reach a certain point in your studies where you begin to see that the shape underneath these clothes is almost always the same. And you can get a kind of triangulation going where you see it, for instance, through uh, first the eyes of, of the Orphic tradition, and then you see it through the Chinese tradition. And then maybe you see it through Jacob Bamey or, or something uh, hermetic and, and, or even in, in within Christianity and within the great religions, you begin to see these same things come at you with some beautiful expressions of them that shed light on all the other ones. And that's the great tragedy of the spirit of exclusivity that so much spirituality suffers from these days, because in fact, we learn so much from each other and and all these different nations and languages and times they they all are conferring incredible amounts of wisdom to us and the more that we become aware of them the less we become lost in the forest of the letters and we can actually uh, as the orphics always love to do look up at the stars and um, you know, Orpheus, one thing I hope we'll talk about just to spend a little time on history, because uh, it's no doubt in my mind that the Orphic tradition is the, the, the mother root of counterculture in the West. And it reappears over and over again in every counterculture that arose in the West. Mm. And, and so, but also there were periods of great popularity. So the Romans, for instance, uh, were all about Orpheus and Virgil kind of rewrote the story of the backward glance and uh, Virgil and, and the poets, Ovid and, and other great Roman poets sort of reinvented the Orphic myth. But Nero, for example, had these famous red trays, these red lacquered trays that had the head of Orpheus on them. Hmm. And Orpheus was always depicted by the Romans as staring up into the sky, right? Because the great Orphic formula was, I'm a child of earth and of starry heaven, but my race is of heaven. So Orpheus was always looking upward, worshiping the sun at dawn, and then looking up at the stars, which are where we come from and what we are destined to return to as stars ourselves, right? Orphic telestica. Exactly. Yeah. Very nicely yeah. put. Um Beautifully put, actually, and there's so many Thank different you. directions we can go in. Um, mm -hmm. If you don't mind, let's back up a little bit. Sure. For those who aren't familiar with with the Orphic Mysteries, perhaps, um, okay. and I've always been interested in in the mysteries, but Orphism is, is kind of hard to pin down at times because, you know, everyone's familiar with the Orphic hymns, but then there's questions like, where did they come from? Who wrote them? How old are they? Mm -hmm. um, obviously, you know, Pythagoras was influenced by the Orphics, but you know, how and why, and, and, and there's different mythologies. And so if, if we can maybe yeah. just talk about the history a little bit, what is Orpheus sure. and who is Orpheus? Okay. One of the things that makes Orpheus, I think, such a rich influence is that, that 
there is a dynamic there on multiple levels. So there are themselves the Orphic mysteries, perhaps with the Orphic hymns at the center of them and then other Orphic writings. There is Orpheus as a mythic personality, Orpheus, the musician on the Argonaut, who played music that was so moving that it could even cause the sirens to be silenced and thereby saved the crew. Uh, Orpheus, who at every stop that the Argos made, learned about the local religion and then created a mystery school for them based on his songs and then gathered all the mystery schools that he had put together, supposedly, into the Orphic hymns. And that's why they represent uh, not just gods from the area of Greece, but also gods from uh, Anatolia, from um, Asia Minor. Mm -hmm. And so others theorize that even in the even the ancients, let's start here, weren't sure about Orpheus. I mean, they, he was constantly talked about. He was talked about in the courts. Uh, you could you could use Orpheus as a reference in a sense, and it was acceptable because he was the great theologian, they called him. And he was massively influential on Plato. Uh, Plato criticizes Orpheus. Uh, he talks about Orpheus maybe being a coward because he refused to just die to be with Eurydice. He abused the talent that the gods gave him in order to change the laws of nature and break the law against the return of the dead. And so therefore he was punished by them. There was this school of thought about it. And, and there were others who, who believed that Orpheus uh, was the great, really was the great poet. There's even some who've suggested in the ancient world that he invented the hexameter, the famous Greek uh, rhythm of poetry, especially of the epic. And so that Orpheus is also the Orpheus of the backward glance, which was something that was almost the first romantic, in some ways, tragic, romantic, very goth kind of gesture of Western literature, where this, this person is heartbroken because of the tragic death of his, his wife Eurydice on, the, on their wedding day, because she is attacked by uh, someone who they called Aristeus. And Aristeus is so taken by her beauty that he just tries to force himself on her in this most inappropriate way. And he gives chase to her when he gets a chance, when she is separated off from everyone else, she runs from him and she is, uh, she falls into a nest of vipers and is bitten and there she dies and Orpheus finds her and he issues such laments in his music that they said all of nature weeped and even the gods wept. And everything stopped. And so the gods told Orpheus, you should go to the underworld and see if you can convince Hades to bring her back to you. Because they had to do something to stop this lament that was putting life into a suspended state. So Orpheus went into the underworld singing his song, which gave him entry and which lulled all the guardians of Hades and even caused uh, Sisyphus to stop pushing the rock and caused the vulture to stop dining on the liver of uh, poor Prometheus. And so he sang to Hades and to Persephone, which, if you think about it, must have been quite awkward since Hades had forced his way on Persephone and it swept her away. And now here comes somebody saying that somebody forced himself on my wife and she was taken from me and I want her back. The Romans like to say that that uh, Hades never bought it. The song didn't move him, but that 
Persephone decided that she was going to make him uh, give Orpheus what he wanted, and he agreed. But there was a trick in it, which was that he must not look back until both he and Eurydice are in the sunlight. And of course, he did look back too soon because he was so frightened that she wouldn't be there and so eager to see her. And unfortunately, he looked just as she was stepping into the light, but was still half in the dark and she disappeared forever. So this time, heartbroken, he goes and he starts to sing songs to Apollo at dawn and taking pity on him. Apollo teaches him the mysteries. But another version is that Persephone taught him the mysteries in the underworld because there are some scenes where they they clasp hands together. And this is taken as the transmission of the mysteries. So we, that's about all we know in terms of myths about Orpheus. And yet you can see how romantic they are. The, this, the loss of the wife, the backward glance, the lulling everyone in Hades into a, a, a state of rapture with, their, with a song. I mean, this is high romance stuff. And indeed, it influenced the troubadours you know, so many years later. Um, it influences the Rosicrucians. We find Orpheus in the plays that are going on in the court of King James, but also at the court of Frederick, uh, the Palatine, who was at the heart of so much of the Rosicrucian fervor in the early 1600s. And Orpheus reappears there uh, over and over again. Even in the Rosicrucian manifestos, we find reference to Orpheus. So Orpheus in academia... We've had this wonderful revolution in academia. Uh, for years, there was only one translation by Thomas Taylor, which is rather torturous, but wonderful, <laughs> and was a big influence on poets like Shelley and on William Blake and others. But for a long time, that was all we had. And then we had Stephen McKenna's Plotinus, but we had no uh, kind of correspondent, wonderful translation of the hymns. Eventually, uh, Professor Athanasicus provided that for us, and basically in the modern world. So these things were in great obscurity, despite the tremendous influence that they had had throughout history. Right. And the feeling in academia was that this was interesting as a foreshadowing or, or a possible counterfeit creation in competition with Christianity when Christianity was taking over and the pagan schools were being closed down, including the academy. And, and the feeling was that it really wasn't that important to study it. And there were a few scholars who had championed it and who came up with this idea that it had been a big religion that lasted hundreds of years in the Mediterranean, that it had had temples and, and it had conferred its mysteries on all the mysteries, the Eleusinian mysteries, for example. Comparetti was like the god of these guys, he, this Italian scholar who created this amazing fantasy of this Orphic religion. But fortunately, in the 19, late 1930s and in the 1940s, uh, Linforth and Guthrie, a couple of academics who uh, loved the material and they turned all their critical skills on it, exposed this the reality, which was we couldn't really be too sure that anything was Orphic, including the Orphic hymns, that, that it was all kind of context dependent. And just because these things resembled each other didn't mean that they had common origin. And then there was a real revolution in the 2000s that continues now, where uh, at the same time, strangely, that academia began to recognize the value of esoteric studies in general, 
there was like a renaissance in orific studies, tremendous books and collections published and uh, that give us such a deeper look into this history. And yet, ironically, it's the same receding horizon. It's, it's still one side arguing, well, wait a minute, there were practitioners there were there were both the itinerant priests who may have been really hustling and who wrote these fake Orphic books, the ones that Plato complains about and that Euripides laments and that Aristophanes makes fun of. But there's also this philosophical side of it that the Neoplatonists have spoken about that has some great thinkers in it. And we have, you know, over and over again, these great thinkers of antiquity saying, but here it's all in this Orpheus stuff. This is really the, you know, where we get it from. And that's why, even though Plato may have cast aspersions, uh, as Olympiodorus the Younger said, uh, one of the last Neoplatonic teachers, Plato everywhere reflects Orpheus and, or borrows from Orpheus, depending on the translations. And so the, the academic feeling on the other side is that what we have here is a spiritual counterculture and that it's a word in a sense like new age. So it's interesting that Harold Bloom, the great religious scholar who coined the, the whole idea of American metaphysical religion in the 1980s with his book, The American Religion, in which he he reported that he didn't think that that we were ever really a Christian nation that we were always an esoteric nation, a Gnostic nation, and that our religion resembles Persian religion more than it actually resembles Christianity. And he called it American Orphism. And mm. he called the New Age religion California Orphism, right? <laughs> so, but this is within mind, keeping in mind the idea that, that Orphism is this collection of all sorts of things that on the low end are superstition and on the high end are the most sublime uh, recipes for achieving transcendence and the experience of what Buck called cosmic consciousness, being purified and remembering the soul and recovering those faculties of consciousness that are lost uh, in dealing with the, all the complexities of the body and of our lives in society and of all our desires and our reactions and our fears. And uh, instead awakening this, uh, what they, they call in uh, Buddhism, the sky-like mind. And so uh, that that holds everything within it simultaneously. So now we have so much more material to look at. And not so long ago in Orphic studies, something like 60 years though, uh, the Dervini papyrus was found, the oldest book in European history. And this is uh, by a practitioner who spends a lot of time complaining about how the other guys who do this stuff, who do uh, rites of purification and who consult oracles and do divination for customers, they don't do it right. They're sloppy. And then he explains why his approach is so superior. And it gives us this glimpse into what was an, an active Orphic culture in one way or another. And then to close off this little section, we have the problem of, well, so where did it come from? Who wrote this stuff? And we have still so much competition and so many differing viewpoints. So uh, one is the idea that it must have arisen in Pergamon, and which is not too far from where the great Sufi poet uh, Rumi lived his life and sort of around where Troy was on that side of Turkey. 
in the West. And, and the idea is partially built on having found texts and gold leafs or tablets, what the Germans called totempas, the death passports, and also uh, that there were goddesses mentioned in the hymns of Orpheus, uh, who, Hypta, for example, who are not Greek. And the, those names were only found in Pergamon. Hmm. So some people think it must have been in Pergamon where these hymns came together. Now we have in the ancient, from the ancients, we have, they say that, well, he went to Egypt, that is Orpheus, and that's where Orpheus learned so much of what he taught. And, and we do have much similarity in the Orphic teachings. I mean, the whole idea of, of you go into the afterlife and you're thirsty and and if you go to the the most available and popular place to drink you will forget and you'll be reborn again into another life mm-hmm. and if you understand the formula and you remember it then you will keep going and you will find a guardian who will ask you who you are and then you will be given water to drink from the uh, waters of memory and then you will get to sit with the gods and this is very similar these these narratives between the Egyptians and and Orpheus. But it's also very similar to the Hittites and to what the Persians inherited from the Babylonians. You know, look at, I mean, worshiping, you know, we come from the stars, we return to the stars, the stars are giving us messages, the mm-hmm. gods are, are, are lift us to be among the stars. And, and then there's also a school that argues that Pythagoras was not influenced by the Orphic uh, mysteries, that he actually created them. And there's a reference to a writer named Orpheus of Croton. And some people argue that Orpheus of Croton was Pythagoras. And we do have ancient testimony to that effect from Chios, for example, who says that what we call Orphic is really Pythagorean and was written by Pythagoras. The idea is here that that Pythagoras wanted to take the Dionysian religion, which he felt had good things about it, but he wanted to take it out of animal sacrifice, the Pythagoreans being vegetarian, like the Orphic teachings, and, and to make it into something that, that people could, could use uh, in a spiritual way that would improve Greek civilization, would take away the war cult, and would bring about this belief in the need for behaving with ethics and morals, and that this is the way to please the gods, not by slaughtering animals. And then there's the question at that point of, so who influenced Pythagoras? And in in the ancients say that he went to Egypt to learn once again. But there's this interesting point, which is that Pythagoras wore pants, at a time when Greeks did not wear pants. And the only people on earth at that time, as far as I know, who wore pants were the Persians, the Iranians. And so it turns out that Samos, the city where Pythagoras grew up and where, where this whole Pythagorean movement started, was in a very uh, deep and long-lasting relationship with Persia where they had been exchanging goods and ideas and things like astrological information 
uh, for generations. So we could very well see an Iranian influence on Pythagoras, especially because think of the advanced way with numbers mm-hmm. that the Persians had inherited from the Babylonians who had learned it from all their celestial uh, equations and calculations. And so, so then you see there's just an endless room for speculation here. It's almost like a Zen koan because we we keep disappearing into into not knowing and this is one of to me one of the values of of these orphic studies because what it, what it did for me was it taught me at a certain point the limits of the intellect and and that the need to learn to be comfortable with paradox and to be comfortable with not knowing mm-hmm. that in those spaces that require a certain humility, that's where the gods can enter. That's where you can actually have the spiritual epiphanies. Exactly. It has to do with it has to do with uh the um ecstasy, ecstasis. You mm-hmm. know, the you know, like Mer- Mircea Iliade named his book Shamanism, Archaic Techniques of Ecstasy. Mm-hmm. You know, and the ecstasis is is um a hallmark of the Dionysian revelation. Because there's a transcendence of the of the personality, you know, in the in the rending apart of the of the ego and the in the paralysis of the intellect, the the intuitive perception and the 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 holistic experience of of the unis mundus emerges. Exactly. Uh, and before we move on, I want to mention there's one other very viable source that's very interesting for these hymns. There's actually two. Uh, One is Onomakritos, who was an omen reader and an expert on sacred rites during the era of the tyrants in Athens. And he was said by one of the ancient chroniclers to have been the one who put the books of Homer together, or one of those who did. And he was, we have record that he was in trouble with the court in Athens because he was accused by a competitive fellow poet of having tampered with the sacred oracles. And some believe that this was because he was editing them. And there's even an argument from a really great Russian scholar on all these matters who says that he believes that Pisistratos was one of the tyrants uh, used Onomakritos to create the hymns to kind of keep Athens under his control, that there was a quality of uh, obedience taught by the hymns to the authority of the gods. There was something that was useful to the tyrants. And Onomakritos, by the way, winds up being taken to Persia by Hipparchus, the, the younger brother and the younger tyrant, once he's kicked out of Athens. And he becomes an ally of Xerxes. And when Xerxes crosses over uh, to attack Greece to revenge his his, uh, father's defeat, we see uh, Onomakritos is with him, along with this Athenian tyrant, Hipparchus. And Hipparchus has commanded Onomakritos to read only positive omens. (laughs) So that probably didn't work out very well for anybody. (laughs) And so... Uh, we don't know what happened to Onomakritos, but we can surmise. And then there's the the other potential source, which is very interesting to me, and we write about it at length, uh, which is the Severan dynasty. And this was during the Severan dynasty starts with the 
uh, era of the five emperors, the year of five emperors, and civil wars everywhere. And the way that uh, Severus becomes emperor is because the Praetorian Guard finally auction off the imperial throne to the highest bidder. They become that cynical. And when the Legion of the Danube hears about this, they immediately declare Severus emperor and they march to Rome to restore order. And this starts the civil war that lasts five years. And Severus emerges as the winner. He was a great general, but it was his his being emperor was very problematic for the Romans because he was half Carthaginian. And their most hated enemy was Hannibal, the Carthaginian, and, they, and he was from Africa. And they just thought, this is, this what, what's going on here? Now, in a way, it was the ultimate uh, expression of, of just how well the Romans had put together their empire, because it, it really was at that point, briefly, a meritocracy where we're he and others rose to the top because of their abilities and they understood Rome. So even though he was Carthaginian and his wife was a high priestess of Baal from Syria, the Romans recognized that, that his wife and he understood that it was a civilizing influence, that it was Mm. something that was uniting the world's economies and allowing uh, progress and, and a better way of life for people and so uh, the Severan dynasty didn't last very long, uh, just a few decades. It was dominated by who they call, the historians call them the four Julias, beginning with Julia Domna, Black Julia, who was this high priestess. And it ended with a couple of kids, uh, one Elagabalus, who gives Caligula a run for his money as, as a uh, somebody who made the most with uh, being on the imperial throne as far as trying to have fun with it. And is allegedly, according to the ancients, the inventor of the whoopee cushion. <laughs> and was also something I think of as surrealist because he had these parties where, for instance, he had one party that was only only bald men were allowed to this great feast. Yeah. He had another party, only one only one-eyed Romans were allowed. <laughs> he had another one where um he put very small lounges with a great feast and invited all the most uh, overweight people in Rome. <laughs> and he, th- he said it was the funniest feast ever, but he also is said to have done cruel things like dropped so many flowers on his guests that he smothered some of them. Oh yeah. Yeah. So at that time, Julia Domna conv- convened a, um, what we would call a salon where she brought the the most, the, just the best minds. There were a couple of judicial thinkers there who absolutely revolutionized Roman law and gave us the foundation of European and uh, our own law here in America. And she also had Galen there, who became the medical authority for Europe for a thousand years. She had Philostratus there, who wrote The Life of Apollonius of yeah. Tyana. And and there are some who think that the hymns were written at that time, possibly by uh, one of these authors, most likely uh, the author of the Apollonius of Tyana, who obviously had these interests. Um, they there was a real resurgence of of the religion of Dionysus, and there was a 
a deep interest in supporting all kinds of different cults and of restoring the ancient cults that had been lost. So some think that these hymns as we have them were written for banquets that Julia Domna gave. And some academics are arguing that you can see it in the structure of them because the about a half to two thirds through is where you get kind of the most exciting stuff that, that has to do with uh, human affections and sexuality in a sense. And, and then it, it kind of has a closing time because as you go toward the end, the hymns all start to talk dreams and death and, and it, it really rolls down into more solemn subjects that kind of bring everybody down and then you go home. Yeah, I've seen um, I've seen some suggestions that the all of the hymns were composed at one time, or not composed. All of the hymns were used at one time, like the entire cycle was recited. Exactly. Yeah, and that and it, this could have been a setting for it to cover all the human conditions from birth to death and everything in between. Exactly, and that's what it sounds like they were doing was having a symposium. Except that apparently it was they, they were more interested in the fun part of it, <laughs> which you can you can see in the life of Apollonius, where he takes a lot of liberties. I mean, it's entertaining literature. It's it's typical of of late empire literature. Now, it certainly was influenced by the magical realism of the Gospels. The the, the there were miracle stories, so they wanted to compete with that. But it's diff- certainly a very different flavor, you know, from. Uh, what we read in in a Neoplatonist like Proclus or in Plato himself. Well, if you read The Golden Ass, you kind of see that similar kind of storytelling style. Yeah, he was part of that scene too, I believe. Yeah. (laughs) And and he was probably reciting, he was probably reciting those hymns in some of his theurgic work. I would think so, yes. And because we know Proclus uh, recited them when he was sick and uh, dying, and we are left a record by Damascus, I think, but I'm not sure, um, saying that that he was in great pain, but that whenever the, he and his friends, his friends would basically perform the hymns for him, but he would start to sing. And even though his memory had been lost and he couldn't recognize his friends, he remembered the lyrics to each of the hymns and that the pain would go away while they were performing them. And I want to I say too that I think it's, I think that both approaches are viable. Reciting them as a whole is going to give you an understanding of the themes that run through all of them and a cohesive, uh, a cohesive idos and telos. Yes. However, reciting them individually is invaluable in, in, in actual work. Yes. And let's, let's talk about that for a moment because they are, I, I see them, Tamara and I see them, my co-author, as uh, a book of days, in a sense, a, a calendar, mm. in the sense that they are a 360-degree view of human life. Interesting. And in each of these views, the, the purpose of the hymn is to reattach us or reharmonize us or tune us to the divine wisdom that is in that aspect of human life. Mm-hmm. And so when you think of the hymn to death, a, a dark ending for the hymns, there's no uh, asking for mercy there. There's no that if I do this hymn, then my life will be prolonged. 
uh, what it's really asking for there is to be inspired to cherish life by the knowledge that life will be lost. And it's also thanking death for taking us away from the weary wheel of deep grief, as, as it's called. And so this could be the wheel of reincarnation, or it could just simply be an image of life itself and the material world. But this, this being uh, taken away by death back to, to the opportunity to achieve enlightenment is a great gift. And all the hymns look at these various aspects of human life and, and kind of give them a place. Some of them are just aspects of nature, which are these things that we depend upon. So we're reminded that certain winds are needed to bring the rains at the right time. And that way we get good crops. And, and the agriculture that underlies the hymns, I think, is a constant metaphor for the hymns themselves being a force or a tool for ripening the human soul, because we do have that connotation in the word. Hmm. And so the, the hymns are, are, are then, if you do them individually like that, uh, day after day, and you really give the attention to them, then you see uh, this great wisdom and you become harmonized and purified through this process. So I think, um, you know, let's talk for a minute about how they, they worked in terms of counterculture, because we'll get a great example of this. Um, so we have this huge influence on Plato. We have some kind of, of Pythagoras influenced by them or Pythagoras maybe even creating them. We have uh, influence in Rome with Virgil and Ovid and, and Nero's trays. And we have, uh, as we come up, through the medieval era, we have this reappearance. And as we find in early grimoire type works, references. And, and then we have this kind of amazing moment in history, the troubadours who call him Sir Orfeo. And he's now, they tell stories of this knight who lost his great love. And uh, he's, but now he's this valiant warrior, which is ironic because the Orphics were against being a warrior cult. And uh, there's such a, this is part of the reason that, that Tamara and I call them a counterculture is because they are coming into a Greek culture where the heroes are men like Odysseus and Achilles. They're great warriors. And the best way to die is, is in battle and to, to your undying fame. And the afterlife is seen as this depressing place for almost everybody except the highest heroes. It's a place where you just go down into the mud and the dank and you don't really have any form and you can't really communicate and you just sort of drift for eternity. And I think this is, this is connected to uh, Sumerian and Mesopotamian ideas yeah. about how human beings don't really earn the afterlife. We're not that important. We're more like insects or uh, slaves for the gods, as the Assyrians said, you know, that the gods created the world. And then they realized, oh, my God, the drudgery of keeping this thing going. We're gods. We don't want to do this. And at first they enslaved the lesser gods. And then finally, the lesser gods rebelled and said, you're killing us with with this drudgery and overwork. And then they invented human beings to do all that. And so we weren't very important, but Orpheus comes in 
to this culture where you're sacrificing animals to please the gods. And then it is like a barbecue. We have to remember that, that that food is given to people. It's given to the needy. It's given to uh, members of of that particular uh, religious group. Um, But there is this slaughter of the animal. And in the Dionysian, uh, you would even see the uh the slaughter in terms of like some some of these cults coating themselves in the blood of the the killed bulls and and uh those kind of activities and along comes orpheus quote unquote and this orphic cult and it establishes the idea that no first of all killing isn't good because killing is you could be killing your own mother even if you kill an animal you could be killing someone who was your mother in another life. And the gods don't want killing to praise them. And the gods don't want human beings killing other human beings who are innocent. That's not how we please the gods. Also, the afterlife is very different than you were told. If you don't know where you're going, then you come back here. And you'll, you could do this forever if you don't realize what you're doing, if you keep forgetting yourself. but. If you listen to our formula and you become part of our group and you give up eating meat and you do the proper things for purification, then when you get to the other side, you'll know what to do and what to say, and you'll never have to come back here again. You will be able to live with the heroes and with the gods in their world. This is a huge change. And if we look at the great Greek playwrights, We see the way that they depict this, that Euripides is condemning Hippolytus as, you know, he's a hippie. I mean, he's he's he doesn't want to fight. He doesn't like women. He he's not a Greek. He's not not, you know, this masculine Greek presence. And and then we see the same thing in Aristophanes, who's making fun of these ideas. And and Plato, who's saying, you know, this he was like all mu- magicians, Orpheus was a coward, uh, musicians, excuse me, Orpheus was a coward. And so possibly the first musician joke in history, by the way. Um, but so what, you know, what are we really dealing with here then when we have this sort of deep respect for the Orphic tradition on the one hand and the constant refrain from the ancients that it contains the highest wisdom of their civilization. And then on the other hand, we have all these reports of these reprehensible Orphic priests who are signing books with the name Orpheus that they make up themselves and then selling them, uh, literally trying to hear about where rich people died so they can show up at the door and say, oh, you got to let us purify your rich relative soul so that they can have a good experience in the afterlife. We have enough indications of these people to know that they were there and they identified with uh, the Orphic cult and the Orphic mysteries. And another thing that's very interesting about that is that, that they're taking advantage of how respectable the name Orpheus is to a degree. And so where did that respect come from? We don't know because the earliest reference that we have in a piece of writing to Orpheus is in the 6th century BC and it's famous Orpheus. So we don't we didn't really find out why, you know, we we have these myths, but what do they actually represent? So uh, Ronnie, do you feel like 
after after all the research you've done, all the thought you've you've put into this, yeah. I mean, what are what are your thoughts on the origins? Do you feel like there was ever a historical, um, maybe Thracian shaman uh, where Orpheus kind of originated, or do you think he's purely a mythical figure? Or I mean, obviously it's impossible to know. But what are your gut feelings on on all of these? theories. Well, it's interesting. And I should have mentioned Thrace. I'm glad you did, uh, because that, of course, is where he was most commonly attributed to have come from. And and Thrace still claims him. If you go through that area of Macedonia, just north of Macedonia, uh, they they have places that are said to, you know, where, where here's where Orpheus slept kind of things. And they say that he was a great king that that ruled there and brought religion uh, as a new source of authority at a time when the traditional uh, warrior authorities were failing, which somewhat addresses what we've just been discussing. Yeah. And, and so uh, what do I think personally? Um, I think that, that when you see how similar a lot of the stuff that we find in the Orphic hymns is to the Egyptian, to the Hittite, uh, to the Phoenician, I think that that Joseph Campbell may have had it right when he had the opinion that that really they all came from a common source. He called it the Great Lament, which was a time when the weather shifted in Europe and in the Mediterranean, and it really caused starvation and and there was there were diseases and it changed from kind of traditional hierarchies and autocracies into this this literature of lament that it happened in, in all of these places. And in all of these places, it created a religious uh, movement that was very different from what had come before it. And so you, you can have like Madame Blavatsky, for example, argued in Isis unveiled uh, based on some ancient arguments that Orpheus was Hindu and that in fact, uh, Dionysus came from India and that he was a version of, of Krishna, most likely. And that uh, all this, you know, vegetarianism and the, the nonviolence to her were typically uh, Hindu. And, and she argued partially from philology because there are some orf prefixed words in Greek that have to do with uh, darkness of skin and dark colors. And uh, she thought that that it might be that. But then you've got somebody like Martin Bernal, whose wonderful book, um, Black Athena, three books, actually, is, looks deeply into these uh, other origins of Greek philosophy and, and of the Greek mysteries in the Mediterranean amongst the, the Egyptians, particularly. Mm-hmm. And, and he comes to the, the conclusion that it may be derived from this Egyptian word orpeus, which is a hereditary prince. And, and he thinks, for instance, that Athena may have been uh, the Egyptian goddess Neith. And he points to signs of Egyptian colonies in very, very early Greek history. So for myself, I'm, I'm comfortable with the not knowing um, whether there was an Orpheus or not, whether uh, there there is a point of origin or multiple points of origin. My guess is that probably several of these origins are true in the sense that they contributed significant um, aspects of what we've come to think of as this Orphic uh, mythos and, and of these mysteries. 
Cool, cool. And let's talk about Dionysus too, because um, sure. I've I've heard it said that Orpheus was, and I think I heard it from you actually. Uh, Orpheus was a reformer of the the Dionysus cult, and then yes. in turn, you perhaps have Pythagoras as a reformer of the Orphic cult, which is interesting. But yeah, can you talk about the the Dionys- or the creator of the Orphic cult? Right, 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 and and therefore also the reformer, <laughs> right. and and so it's very interesting to me. It's one of the strangest. Uh, dichotomies, I think, in in our studies of these matters, which is how this religion of Dionysus, which was built around, um, in many cases, this kind of of letting loose of the irrational mm-hmm. that was so beautifully depicted by Euripides, right? And when we, we hear the story of Pentheus, you know, winds up having his head torn off, but not before uh, he's cross-dressing under the influence of Dionysus, who's able to drive him mad essentially and that madness is essential to the understanding of Dionysus. Now at first we think, well, how is this possible when people are dancing around and bathing in in the blood of bulls and and that uh, a story about a mother who doesn't even realize she's ripping the head off her own child thinks that she's killing a, a wild cat that is intruded mm-hmm. on the women's mysteries in the forest. But then if we read the Neoplatonists, we find that this idea of mania and Plato went deeply into this has multiple dimensions at its lowest level. It's this complete lock. It's this atavistic loss of control, which was a a, a shamanistic approach to religion. Who else, you know, in very early times, we theorized that, that Neolithic hunters would do rituals of this sort. And, and so then we have another form of mania, which is poetry itself. And the idea that the poet is is inspired by the, a kind of mania that the muses send. And this mania not only influences the poet, but if the poet captures it, if, if, if the poet has sufficient skill, then the mania affects the people who read the poem. And so the poem can can cause this ecstasis that can bring it can bring people out of their own selves and give them these kind of cosmic experiences. And then we have the mania of the theurgist, of the philosopher, uh, the, the desire for the unity of God, an erotic mania, we're told, by Plato and elsewhere, uh, where this, you know, we can think of it as the ladder in the blank in the uh, banquet, in Plato's banquet, or we can think of it as uh, the ladder that Plotinus offers in On the Beautiful, where you start out maybe with you know, what a beautiful woman, this, you know, you know, people say, you know, this makes you want to live just looking at her. And then you're told, well, why don't we lift this up, you know, another level? She's also, you know, a wonderfully intelligent woman, and she's a wonderfully kind woman. You know, wow, yes, kindness, that's another kind of beauty that makes someone even more beautiful. And then you eventually work your way all the way up this ladder, uh, you through the beauties of nature, and the beauties of the intellect. And you finally find the source of all beauty, in the good, the true, and the beautiful, the one. The letter of Eros. Exactly. So this mania that's sort of hidden in this in this frenzy of this worship is, is actually also the most sublime kind of transcendence. Well, the mania is an enthusiasmos. Yes, it, exactly. It's enthusiasm. And the mania is also, you know, we're talking about, you're talking about mania, we're talking about ecstasy. And it's so funny how in the English language, these 
terms almost acquire a pejorative sense because in this earlier in this earlier context they represent states of uh mystical awareness and self-transcendence and uh the way that we enter into unitive knowledge so it's it's something that um that is a human birthright though right that that the experience that that we can achieve through the divine mania the thing that makes it transcendent is our own natures and i like to compare this to the idea in mahayana buddhism that there is a buddha in everything like in the flower ornament sutra for example which lists all these endless buddhas these cosmic buddhas and so you can have faith in the world to a certain degree because even though it's maya and even though it's a a snare everything here with us is is buddha well now you're getting into the tantric distinction the two truths of you know there's the the ultimate truth and then there's the kind of mundane truth but they're both truths yes exactly the par- one of the paradoxes or the hermetic idea of you know the above and the below and the below and the above the interpenetration of the of the hexagram which is you know that's the sri yantra that, and even in the most minute things that's why even in the folk religion of of the supposedly unlearned you have the supreme revelation in the most simple action of the pouring of a water libation mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and it's really about unveiling. And, and so what, you know, what you're saying, yes, it's our birthright, but the thing is we are enmeshed in a world that, you know, we're enmeshed in relationships or enmeshed in responsibilities. We're enmeshed in uh, personal dramas, family concerns, uh, the vicissitudes of fortune. And this is no different than it was 2,000, 5,000 years ago for our forebears and the prior cycles of races that occurred before us. And, and so the, the, what, I love what you say about Orpheus being an outlaw, being a, being, being, you know, a rebel, really, because you have to be that outlaw like Odin, you know, who's also a god of ecstasy. Mm-hmm. You have to be that, that outlaw in order to step outside of this human social matrix and enter into the matrix of relationships that involves the gods, the spirits, animals, plants. And and when you enter into that, all of a sudden, these go from being these sort of tertiary aspects of an environment to being living, conscious manifestations of, of a constant theophany. Mm-hmm. Beautifully put. And and another thing I think that is really interesting is you see so much of Orphism in authentic primitive Christianity. You know, true. I would even say the singing element in the Mass is very Orphic. Mm-hmm. The wine. Yep. <laughs> yeah, there's so much influence. I mean, that's why the Church Fathers uh, they they would quote Orpheus admiringly here and there. We even have the record of a Franciscan monk. We don't know who he was, but he left uh, his opinion that uh, Orpheus was was Jesus, that, that it's just Jesus in a different time, and that there's much of good to learn from these ideas. And so the, the church itself at one time saw the Orphic religion as a precursor, and Orpheus was even granted the boon 
of being allowed to exist uh, not in heaven or hell, but in a nice kind of garden set off to the side for pagans <laughs> who had they been alive after Jesus would certainly have been Christian. And so, uh, which actually is a, it's a good time to look at uh, the influence as we come up uh, on the Renaissance, because that allows us to talk a little bit about Ficino, who I think in many ways is the the great father of Western esotericism, of the huge influence he had on Agrippa and on Paracelsus and uh, on uh, Levi and, and others, Crowley. And so you've got this fellow, and this was a big influence on, on Tamara and I too, because when we read about what he had to say about the hymns, we were eager to try them out. And so he said that there was no more powerful magic than the Orphic hymns. So we're left to wonder, what does that mean? Well, he kind of explained it in another quotation where he says, I learned from Orpheus that love existed, that it held the keys to the whole world. The whole power of magic consists in love. The work of magic is the attraction of one thing by another because of a certain affinity of nature. So here we come back to Eros again, and this idea that that the hymns, why are they the most powerful? Because they have love in them. They teach us the love of the gods, that each hymn, as it describes a different aspect of life, shows us how the gods love us and how they try to help us. And so Ficino himself famously had this experience where he he knew that he wanted to spend his life. This was a 16, I'm sorry, 1462. And he knew that, that he didn't have the means to do so. He wanted to translate Plato and Aristotle. And we assume the Orphic hymns, because many of these had just been rediscovered by a merchant who researcher who brought them back from Arabia, as it was called, and where they had been preserved. And so in frustration, he did the hymn to the cosmos. He had his own music and, and he performed it in Greek as, as a gesture to the universe of asking to be given this right. And it, almost immediately after, he received a letter from Cosmo de Medici, who said, I have decided to give you this house in Caregi. And I'm going to give you a farm to support you. And I want you to spend the rest of your days translating these, these wonderful uh, books of wisdom. And he mentioned the hymns of Orpheus in particular and told him, uh, told Ficino to bring his uh, musical instrument with him, an early form of the guitar, and to perform them. So this affected Ficino greatly. I mean, he obviously he felt yeah. that his prayer had been answered and he went about doing this and in so doing created the Renaissance really because he and Cosmo created the Platonic Academy of Florence and at the heart of it really was Ficino doing these translations and sharing these ideas and awesome, awesomely performing these hymns like all the time. Um, he actually had a, a picture of Orpheus painted on his instrument, and, and he would play the hymns to heal his friends. He would play them just when everybody was gathered. And we have this wonderful uh, testimony from 
uh, a composer named Poliziano, who said, I, I was there with my friends listening to Ficino perform these beautiful hymns all night long. And I was so excited that I came home and without any sleep, I, I wrote this incredible composition. And eventually Poliziano did a, a, a really an opera, uh, what became opera, with Leonardo da Vinci doing the set designs for it. And it was called Orphe, and it was about Orpheus. Amazing. Incredible. And then you have Botticelli is in that group with his famous Aphrodite painting. We have um, Michelangelo and then, of course, Lorenzo the Magnificent, Cosmo's nephew. And and together, these people created the Renaissance and so many other artists who are influenced by this, this, this upswelling of pagan knowledge and inspiration. Isn't that amazing how... This ancient knowledge had this resurgence at this point of history and literally restructured culture. Exactly. Now, it's one of the interesting things about it is, and I think this has something to do with our times, we can, we can see a similarity, is that here's this flowering, this amazing time to be alive with this incredible art and all these things going on in Florence. And, and then all of a sudden along comes Savarinola, who's a fundamentalist. And who says, hey, this stuff is pagan, it's demonic. And, you know, all these paintings and these books, they're nonsense. You know, we have to get back down to living like Jesus and being simple and humble. And, you know, we're damned creatures. You know, what are we doing here? And he was so influential that not only were many of the books of Ficino burned and many works of art burned, but Pico della Mirandola, who was also part of that scene, and who famously wrote the oration on the dignity of man, you know, he converted and to Savernola's form of fundamentalism. And what's really weird about that is that we have this great quote from Pico in the earlier days where he says, the names of the gods that Orpheus sings are not the names of deceiving demons from whom evil and not good comes, but of natural and divine powers distributed in the world by the true God for the great utility of man, if he knows how to use them. So somebody who had the wisdom to recognize that, mm-hmm. yet was somehow emotionally moved by this appeal uh, to this kind of primitive form of aestheticism. And the funny thing was Savonola didn't last very long. You know, people got tired of him and they threw him out. Yep. Uh, and so... But the thing is, there may have been some kind of social pressure involved in that supposed conversion. I mean, he had a lot to lose. Absolutely. And I agree with that completely. And and part of that may be that we we don't know for sure, but there's a lot of speculation that that Ficino and Pico were gay. Not that they were together, but that they were that, that their propensities were were gay. And so that could have been something that that would have stood to really uh, destroy their their status in society, especially Pico, because Ficino, as long as he was under the protection of the de' Medici's, he was okay, And he was a scholar. And generally, even though it was condemned, people weren't all that interested in the scholarly side of it. But Pico was a nobleman and had had power and wealth that he could lose. There was a cloak and dagger world at that time. Very much so. Yeah. And that's part of what makes the Renaissance so amazing is the the way that this sort of uh, 
you know, it reminds me in a way, I you know it maybe didn't have the dignity, but it reminds me of the 1960s explosion of art and sexuality. And then all of a sudden it was just this whole different world was occurring amongst those who, who took that ride. And, and then you see the influence of it because only 30 years after Ficino dies, Agrippa is born and Agrippa is going to write about the hymns of Orpheus too. And and then then not far from there to getting to the Rosicrucian movement, right? And their interest in Orpheus as well. And interestingly, even found it. We were we interviewed uh, this guy Randy Rourke, who worked for William Burroughs, and who also was for I think seventeen years he was Ginsburg's uh, assistant, Alan Ginsburg. And we asked him, well, what about the Beats? Were they influenced by Orpheus? And he said, well, you know, they they looked down on Greek mythology, like Burroughs said that that all that stuff was um, the ancients trying to understand the world as best they could. But it was outdated and it was not something we were interested in because it produces bad poetry. And, and they didn't mean the ancient poetry. They meant bad modern imitations. Mm-hmm. And so um, but then he said, however, that one exception to their disinterest in ancient Greek mythology was Orpheus. <laughs> and they said that um, when they saw the film um, by Cocteau about Orpheus, where Orpheus, uh, where there, there's a poet who's listening to a radio in a car and, and he tunes into different stations. It's basically Burroughs cut up method, right? It's, it's letting randomness guide you. And and from this radio would come the poems that this poet poet was writing, and he was Orpheus. That that really hit Ginsburg and Burroughs and Kerouac, and they often used that as their symbol of how they wrote, of how they tried to tune in to kind of the radio of life and to all the things that were going on around them and capture this history that was 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 happening before their eyes. And then he pointed out that. There was a novel written by Kerouac, his very first novel, which was not released during his life, called Orpheus Descending. So even there among the beats who were holding the past in such contempt, Orpheus somehow survives this dismissal. Super interesting. So um, if you don't mind, I'd like to go back a little bit and maybe get into the weeds, pun intended. Um, you had you had mentioned earlier the agriculture of the soul. I think is is how you put it, which mm-hmm. I thought was really a, a beautiful way to, to to say it. I'm fascinated by the the connection, and you touched on it um, with the connection of the Orphic myths and the myths of Persephone. There seem to be some obviously strong connections there. Um, for me mm-hmm. personally, I see the descent of Persephone as maybe the into Hades as, as the marriage of spirit with matter. Um, exactly. You know, and I'm wondering, because the sim- symbolism is so similar between the, the two stories, um, I'm interested in your take spiritually and symbolically um, the Orphic the Orphic descent um, and the Orphic myth, and specifically the role of uh, Aristeus. What, what, what do you think he represents? That is such an interesting question because Aristeus is another one of these paradoxes. The, ma- the name basically means most excellent. And he was a, a demigod, at least, if not a, a local god, said to be the son of Apollo. 
and he was a beekeeper and he was a, a protector of shepherds and of flocks. And so he sounds like a very positive agricultural yeah. figure. And yet he becomes morphed into this shepherd who is so overcome by the beauty of Eurydice that he tries to uh, rape her and and she's killed as a result. So what is actually going on there? If you know, there are those who say that Apollo uh, was the father of Orpheus, which would make Aristeus his half brother. Mm-hmm. And we can see that this is definitely connecting somehow to the agricultural. And when we read the Neoplatonists, we're told that all of these stories are not to be taken literally, that these are it's this metaphorical language that is trying to convey cosmic principles that are very difficult to convey in words. Yeah. And so, for instance, in the church, in the early church, they used to say, well, the pagan gods, I mean, look what their poets have them do. I mean, they're terrible. It's all adultery and murder and incest. And, mm-hmm. uh, and Orpheus is the worst of them. And you wonder about that because you're thinking, well, how can that be? I mean, it's a pretty elevated form of the mysteries that we right. find with Orpheus. But we find it in the idea that a, a, a Aristeus, the most excellent, is going to try to rape Eurydice because she's so great looking and she falls into a pit of vipers and is, is killed. And so the idea seems to be that, that what we're discussing here are, are seasons and are, are nuances of nature, but also those as metaphors for the soul itself. Mm-hmm. And so as we discuss uh, these operations of nature, we're also looking at how our, our own physicality operates. Exactly. And, mm-hmm. and, and so, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, I was just going to say, and this is kind of like interpreting Christianity literally. It's the same sort of mindset that interprets these myths as literal, like Zeus is a philanderer and Apollo's a rapist, and uh, there are ne- ne- Neoplatonic teachers who who pointed out correctly that this this they should not be interpreted this the way that these are allegorical and and they actually represent mysteries yes and i think also that they are um it's one of the most interesting things to me about theurgy and about neoplatonism is it, it seems like everybody forgets that Iamblichus is saying that this this is best approached with an attitude of play, right? Mm-hmm. And and so this reminds me of, uh, for example, in spiritualism, it's very common and it's well known among spiritualists that people when they first start out, when they're they're interested and they start playing around with it, but it's play, have startling results. Mm-hmm. which then caused them to get very serious about it. And then their results dry up. And, and I find this over and over again in traditions, this idea of divine play of the, the need for a human being to get out of, as you mentioned earlier, the straitjacket, let's call it of daily life and of life in the body in order to enter a state of cosmic play. And this is where magical things can happen. So, let me give you an example from uh, our experience of the hymns. So when Tamara and I first did that ritual that we mentioned at the beginning of this, uh, we 
did it very humbly. You know, we did try to pay attention to hours and days, particularly finding out feast days that were appropriate. And we did look for items that that were associated or replace them with things that were meaningful to us. And but all we really did was we we lived in the middle of Hollywood and we had this apartment that looked out on other apartment buildings and we were up on the third story and we looked out the window with the window wide open. We even took the screen off because we wanted to be right there with the sky. Mm-hmm. And we softly sang the hymns one day at a time. And, and we had did it not in the spirit of, of a, a big ritual or in the spirit of wanting dramatic results. We did it as, Again, on the one hand, a gesture of goodbye and gratitude to Manly Hall and to everyone we had known there and that beautiful place. And as a gesture of welcoming to this new life that we were entering upon. And when we did it, we did have at times startling results. So, for example, when we did the hymn to Athena, we didn't get a lot of owls in this area, especially at that time. Uh, It was pretty urban. Mm -hmm. And in broad daylight, a big great horned owl showed up and landed on the nearest telephone pole to our window, sat there while we performed the hymn to Athena. And then when we finished, it jumped off and swooped directly at us and then up and over the roof. We had another case where we did the hymn, isn't it? And we did the hymn to Aphrodite once and... And while we were doing it, sure enough, a couple came by holding hands and they stopped right underneath where we were softly singing these hymns three stories up and they kissed. So they were these subtle, minor, let's call them synchronicities. Mm-hmm. And but they were we could tell something was happening and we had multiple versions of this appropriate to the to the deity that was involved. And and then we, when we finished them, so this is years later now, this was, this was back in the late eighties, early nineties when, when this happened. And, and now we've been working on them off and on all our lives. And we're finally going to be published by inner traditions. And we go to do the final edit. And, and when you publish books, especially through a traditional publisher like that, there's like edit after edit, after edit, after edit. <laughs> and there's finally this final, final edit. This is it. You can't change anything else. It's going to the printer. So we, we went through the whole book and then we did them again out loud. We did them all at once this time. And when we finished, and this was during the COVID lockdown, we suddenly heard these screams just down the canyon from us that you couldn't tell if they were screams of horror or laughter. They were the kind of screams that, that, that give you goosebumps and they felt to us like, like, you know, maenads or like, like Dionysian Mm -hmm. screams. And, and the most amazing thing about this was that we had had a neighbor who had lived in these Hills all her life for like over 60 years And she used to tell us stories about them. And she said that when they were sparsely uh, inhabited, that in the 1960s, the kids that lived up here, the teenagers like herself, would take a dirt trail 
down to Sunset Boulevard eventually, where they would be kind of dumped off right by the Whiskey A Go Go and these places where all this amazing stuff was happening. And they would go see Jimi Hendrix or The Doors or something. Mm -hmm. But that they formed a society where whenever they did this, they would meet under a certain palm tree and they would drink wine and they would read poetry that they had written. And they called themselves the, the Dionysus Society. And where those screams came from was where she pointed at. Crazy. How cool. Yeah. So what is that? And how do, you know, how do we explain those kinds of experiences? And um, it's, it's very mysterious and wonderful. And that's part of, I think, the lesson of it. And that's the point I'm getting around to here is that, that being willing to accept the mystery and the joy of that mystery of these inexplicable occurrences the magic, if you will, of life is part of what makes these, these systems of thought so wonderful and effective. But at the same time, just like Chinese Taoist alchemy, for example, it's all too easy, especially for really intelligent people to get lost in all this detail Mm-hmm. And try to exactly duplicate or replicate. And I have nothing but respect for people doing this, by the way, because where would we be without people who are, who are diving in so deeply? But at the same time, I think that we forget that we, that we may not need to be 100% accurate. As Agrippa said, the important thing, do it yourself if you need to. Make the hymns yourself. Make the ritual yourself. The important thing is entering that state of receptivity, the important thing is having faith that that the divine will respond, that just as eager as we are to reach out to the divine, that the divine is eager to communicate and to help us and to, to you know, help improve uh, this great schoolroom that we're all uh, sojourning through. And so I think that that's one of the things that, that fascinates me most about Neoplatonism is that while I was the same thing with the Chinese Taoist alchemy, by the way, with the secret of the golden flower, while I was pursuing the texts and and the the rituals and and going deeply into these things and having a blast doing it, by the way. I mean, Tamara and I, you know, it's it's fun. I mean, when you start to get this stuff, it's amazing to be able to read the difference between Iamblichus and Plotinus and Proclus alone mm-hmm. and the way they view the same thing, basically, is is a wonderful experience. But then you suddenly start to have the experiences like your, your, your knowledge is imperfect, but your devotion to it and your readiness to be open to it. Suddenly things happen and you have these wondrous experiences that, that show you the magic that is possible in life. Very nicely put. And I, I know we have to start wrapping up. Um, I have another, I have another question for you if you don't mind. Sure. So what I wanted to ask you, I want to take advantage of the fact that we have you here. So I'm interested in the your thoughts on the the death of Orpheus, as well as the death of Dionysus. And if you can wrap in the idea of the Titans, too, I think that's a fascinating um, angle. Sure. Um, and just what, what these these deaths symbolize, what they mean, and what we can learn from, from all okay. of that. First, let's just look at the mythological level of it and, and see that it, isn't it interesting that that we have Zagreus, the baby Dionysus, uh, attacked by the Titans, the earlier generation of gods, including Kronos, and that they 
uh, it's said in 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 some versions of the myth that they you know they hate the gods because they were deposed by them and locked up in Tartarus, mm-hmm. and they especially hate Zeus, who was the hero of the gods in that battle, and that when Zeus has baby Dionysus and, and you know with Semele, uh, not with his wife uh, Hera, the great goddess, that he winds up having to hide Dionysus. And so there was a form of the mysteries where there were these loud warriors that would dance and clang their swords on their shields. And they were remembering the Corabantes and they were remembering that, that that had been their job protecting the baby Dionysus. So when he was crying, the other gods wouldn't hear. And, and so um, the Titans figure out where Dionysus is, though, Zagreus is, and they wait until Zeus is occupied elsewhere, and they use these toys to draw Dionysus away from the throne of Zeus, because this is a key part of the story. Zeus is so delighted by this baby that he picks this kid up and puts him on the throne hmm. of the universe, and this gesture is is meant to show uh, some of the ancients say that that Zeus understood what an improvement over, he was over Kronos for everyone. And that the Dionysus would be as much of an improvement over Zeus and he would be taking over from Zeus and would become the God of the universe. And so seeing this great happiness and this new God that would be even better for people and for gods and the great Zeus, they, hatch their plot and they get this kid to follow these toys which include like a ball of cotton and uh they're all said to represent uh the planets and 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 the matter from which the human body is made and Hmm. time for example so we can see that this that the titans are symbols of cosmic principles or they're manipulating cosmic principles to draw this young god into uh, their clutches. And when they get him, they rip him apart. They make a stew out of him and they eat him because they want his power. They think that maybe, you know, they'll be able to defeat the gods and this very primitive idea they, they're atavistic and Zeus finally understands what's happening. And he throws lightning and they're all burned to a crisp. And so this is what we as human beings are born from, from this allegedly Orphic myth. There's a lot of argument about whether it is Orphic or not. Mm-hmm. And so the Titans, they are on one side, our, our, our parents, our grandparents. And so we inherit this destructiveness, this ignorance, this uh, hate for the gods, this hate for each other, and this this propensity for chaos. But at the same time, we're made up of the holy fire of Zeus and of the remnants of Dionysus. And so Apollo, it is said, is given the job of going and taking back all of these, these missing pieces of Dionysus. They're compared sometimes to tears, right? Each individual soul is a tear of Dionysus falling through the universe and self-forgetfulness of the Titans until Apollo uh, finds and saves that soul. And so this, this sense of 
of redemption, of course, is something that became very important in Christianity is one of the reasons that Christianity saw a resemblance to Orphism, because they believed that this was an Orphic myth, even though they said it was disgusting, you know, what kind of religion would talk about that, even though mm-hmm. it's so weird, because they're they're giving the, the, the you know, the host and right. saying, eat, eat the body of Christ. It's, it's a little weird. But, <laughs> um, but then you've got um, the similarities mythologically. So, so here you have this torn apart God, Zagreus, and then you have Orpheus, who is supposed to be the, the priest of Dionysus par excellence. And he is torn apart by the Maenads, who are worshipers of Dionysus. And the story told was that Dionysus was angered because Orpheus had revealed the mysteries of the gods. The story was also told that the Maenads were angry because Orpheus insisted on only teaching men. And so because their men were being taken from them in some sense, and they were being taught things they weren't allowed to know, there was this violent attack by the women. But that's strange, too, because in the religion of Dionysus, the women were allowed to have their own mm-hmm. uh, single gender uh, meetings where they would go out in the woods together and camp and, and have their own mysteries separate from men. So it, a lot of it doesn't make sense. None of it really makes sense when you take it literally. Yeah. And then you also have the similarity between Semele and Persephone, as has already been, not Semele, well, actually, yes, Semele, Persephone, and uh, Eurydice, right? Mm-hmm. And let's look at Eurydice and Persephone first. So both of them have been attacked by somebody who, who you know, drags them away. It's a sexual attack and, and violently changes the course of their lives. Mm-hmm. And, and both of them have this, uh, this kind of position as, as having something to do with the judging the dead, because in very early versions, um, there are some references to Eurydice under a different name, which is Agriope, Agriope, the wild eyed, right? And, and, and even of her saving Orpheus from the underworld, as if there may be this mm-hmm. underlying matriarchal story of a female goddess who saves the lost male, which goes very well with Adonis and the other earlier yeah. uh, golden bow kind of stories about these dying fertility gods. And so Osiris, if we can go there. Exactly. Too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so then what you've got is, and also what does Eurydice mean? It means wide ruling, Right. Your your is wide. That's Europe. You know the wide plain, mm-hmm. and and combined with with decay, right? The the goddess of justice, or decay, wide ruling. Now, why would this woman, who for most of the history of Orphism had no, I mean, no qualities at all? Yeah. I mean, she, there's many early versions where she isn't even mentioned by name, and. She's just the lost wife. But how can she have a name like that? Well, that's the name that you would give to the judge of the dead, right? Mm-hmm. Wide ruling. So there are some who believe that 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 basically that the Orpheus story is a restatement or a mixed up version even of the story of Dionysus going to retrieve his mother Semele from, from Hades. Hmm. Um, he's allowed to do that by Zeus and he's the only one who brings somebody back. 
And so Orpheus then is this, this under the influence of the great lament, this tale of sadness that involves the elements of the original story. But when we, with even this, think about this, man, that Zeus to in, in the Orphic mysteries is Zeus Hades, right? Mm-hmm. So Zeus is the one who has taken Persephone to the underworld. And this is where the incest stuff came in, you know, as Christians saw it. Uh-huh. And, and so this all becomes this complex uh, kind of confused set of relationships that, that mirror each other. Yeah. Now, as to the deeper meaning of it, I think I agree with you when you say, first of all, it captures beautifully human mortality. It's even been used, for example, as a, as a metaphor for creativity, that the artist has, tries to capture this vision, goes into the underworld and tries to bring it back. But it's never complete. No creativity is ever complete. And so we wind up, we, we do that backward glance and we say, oh, you know, I, I guess it's done. I'll never work on this again. And then as most authors will tell you, even <laughs> after your book is published, you wish you had done this or added right, that of or changed that. And so it's been used as a symbol of that. Jung used it as a symbol of individuation in his, in his psychological philosophy that that it was a positive thing that it was when the the psyche actually kind of grows up and becomes fully itself and it leaves behind the underworld and it leaves behind Eurydice but through that pain of loss achieves true individuation and remembering and so it has a huge resonance to human beings on so many different levels, not the least of which is just that it's this beautiful symbol of everyone's desire to bring back loved ones, family, friends, pets, you know, mm-hmm. and and to, we stand there, all of us like Orpheus, looking back at that last moment and and wishing that it could have been extended to the moment that we're in. And so I think there's a psychological element to begin with that that has a deep resonance with human life. Yeah, And then I think it's also the symbol of the descent of the soul, right? That this is the underworld. Right. This is where the, the great cave that we're stuck in. Right. And, and that we, you know, we're, here we are longing. Now, who's Orpheus? Orpheus comes down with harmony. And when Orpheus enters the world, as we see through the influence of Orpheus throughout Western history, there's suddenly this, this harmony. Suddenly the flowers are blooming. It's like Persephone is walking again through the fields in spring and people are creative and hopeful and, and love becomes the strongest magic in the world. And so that love is, is the soul. And, and so isn't Orpheus descending into the underworld. This was something that Tamara pointed out that I, I, I really think highly of is just the symbol also of the soul and the body Yeah, that the soul brings that harmony and that that ability to sustain through time to this collection that is the body. And yet, no matter how powerful that gift is, the soul is going to walk back to the light from which it came. And there's never the ability to really take the body with it. Yeah. Um, that it, you know, we can transmute uh, so much of it. But but we're often told that we're building another body, right? That we're building the body of light, the true body of the soul. 
and that this is sort of the experiment that 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 gets us there. And so I think that it 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 touches on so many aspects of the mystical experience, and it can be looked at as 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 a symbol of so many key teachings that are connected to every one of these traditions. And I think that's why it, it has so much force to it. Yeah, beautifully put. I agree a hundred percent. I mean, it's it's also got so much of the idea of kind of the perennialism of life and then mm-hmm. rebirth and reincarnation tied into there as well. And um it's really beautiful. It is, yeah. And it reminds us of just to appreciate the beauties of life. Absolutely. Well, I I hate to do this, but we do have to wrap up. I've of course enjoyed this immensely. It's been a real well, honor you. to talk to you, Ronnie. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for your work. And where could uh, people find you? I mean, you've got this new book, The Magic of the Orphic Hymns, a new translation for the modern mystic, which you wrote with your wife and co-author uh, Tamara Lucid. What else do you have? I know you've written other books, and and what do you have planned for the future? My uh, American Metaphysical Religion book is out there. It's only a, a year old. And if you have interest in these matters, it's an absolute treasure trove of stories that were mostly forgotten about people all through the history, uh, even prior to the colonies of this continent, and of how deeply steeped even the pilgrims, for example, were in all of these esoteric ideas. And um, if you enjoy this stuff, that's a good place to find out that America is actually a very different heritage than we're generally taught that it is. And uh, I had I have written a book about uh, the context of the creation of the Rosicrucian manifestos hmm. that Inner Tradition will be publishing at some point. I think probably it's next year, but I'm not sure. Cool. And uh, have been working on a book with Tamara about the unobstructed universe teachings um, that were the darling of the world in the 1940s and are almost completely forgotten now. And they're really fascinating because they, they absolutely dovetail with the Neoplatonic and with the, also with the Chinese Taoist teachings about life and death. And yet it's given in this kind of American vernacular that's so different. We're used to encountering these ideas in, in more or less ancient dialects. Yeah. And here we have these very modern people who, who had these experiences in a different way and who record them. And they're definitely recording the same thing. So uh, we use them as a prism. Plus, they're just such fascinating. Uh, this, this, the guy who wrote the book, Stuart Edward White, uh, was a friend of Teddy Roosevelt's and uh, a very uh, famous writer of frontier books and himself a, a guy who'd been a lumberjack and uh, was super comfortable in the frontier. Teddy Roosevelt said he was the best shot that he ever met. Uh, he was a kind of old-fashioned 1900s uh, manly man, you know, <laughs> but his wife, uh, Betty, who was the channel that, that, that came up with all this amazing stuff. Um, she, uh, she, I mean, let's just say it's so dramatic that after she died, who's who refused to print her death date because she was convinced that she had proven, they were convinced that she had proven that she was still alive uh, in the beyond. And Jung, hmm. Carl Jung even said, uh, that he he wrote to a friend. He was he didn't want to take this position publicly, but he wrote to a friend that he believed that Betty 
was not just an archetype, but also a spirit mm. and therefore a proof of the survival of identity after death. So uh, it's a, it's a, it's a wow. really amazing story. So that thing will be coming out at some point. And uh, I'll be doing some classes later this year for the Theosophical Society and also for Morbid Anatomy. Awesome. And uh, yeah, so there'll be, there's things going on. All right. Well, we will definitely promote all of that. And if somebody <laughs> wants to reach me, oh, thank yeah. you for that. Um, it's best probably at, at Instagram okay. or on my threads. Um, they're both the Ronnie Pontiac because there was already another Ronnie Pontiac. <laughs> cool, man. Hey, thank you again. This has been an, an absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. Um, anytime. That was the wonderful Ronnie Pontiac and erudite and experienced researcher, esotericist, and all-around interesting person. What a cool interview. I had a lot of fun in that interview, actually. like I found him to be really engaging, charismatic, super interesting, has a lot of life experience behind him, and obviously thinks very deeply about these topics. So uh, it was a, a real pleasure. Yeah, it was cool. I enjoyed it. And all of our long-term listeners know that we have a focus on theurgy and the the mysteries of antiquity. And the Orphic mysteries are a very big part of that sort of matrix. So I love talking about that subject. There's so much, so deep you so deeply you can go into it. And it's clear that Ronnie is passionate about this subject and he did his footwork. He did the historical research. He provides a really useful contextual analysis in that book. And his translation of the hymns are accessible for a modern day practitioner and reader. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, he's definitely someone who I think engages with the material. I mean, he admits as much. He and his wife, who co-authored the book, who I definitely want to make sure we give credit to as well. But yeah, it's it's that line of, of practitioner and scholar that we like to engage with. So it was it was great. Um, so thanks again, Ronnie. Yeah, big thanks. Big thanks to him. And I hope that he's successful in all of his undertakings. Right now, we have been in a sort of renaissance of research into these subjects. Going back really post-World War II, there's been such a trajectory of unfoldment. And these these texts and these materials have become available again to the world at large. And it's great. Whether we're talking about the Najamadi Library or really important studies on the Greek mystery cults and Hellenic religion, the Egyptian mysteries, all these things now, there's so much material available that there should be nothing stopping someone who wants to develop a practical spiritual life based upon these things. And the wonderful thing about it is that these gods are still available to us, still active principles. And we can take these materials, engage with them meaningfully, and implement them in our lives in a structured way that is consistent with the old, yet resonant with our current time, so that with the day-to-day life that we all share, it can't be the same. We can't, we can't completely reconstruct the, the lifestyle of an initiate of 2,000, 3,000 years ago. But what we can do 
is look at what they did, understand it, and then adapt that to our day and our time. You know, I think that there's some people out there that are doing just that right now. Right off the top of my head, I mean, Sarah Janes is an excellent example of someone who does these things. We love her. We had her on the show before to talk about the mysteries of dreams and Asclepion and things like that. And she does all kinds of really interesting things in her work as well. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely shout out to her and what she's doing. That's a perfect example of someone taking the mysteries into the present day and showing how they're so relevant and accessible. Okay. So moving on, you have a real gem for us today for the book review. What do, what do you got? I'm very excited about this. Balthazar, who we've had on the show before, he is known, uh, he goes by Balthazar's Conjure on YouTube. He is a professional uh, diviner and magician and teacher. He, he is an expert desi- diviner. He is one of the most adept diviners I've ever met actually. He knows what he's doing around reading all kinds of things. Um, But he also teaches and practices angelic magic. Um, He's a published author who's written really interesting work. And he has a website where he can be reached as well. He's recently, through Scarlet Imprint, put out uh, just a fantastic oracle. It's called The Divine Gypsy Mother. It is his own uh i don't want to say reworking but his own his own uh refinement of the zaguner cards the gypsy cards which are used in especially in mainland europe for divination it's essentially a germanic system with similarities to the lenormand which is also a germanic system despite the association with madame lenormand's name it is also a germanic system it is a very straightforward system of cardomancy and he produced a set of cards which are absolutely beautiful the artist who worked on them is very talented and one of the things he did intentionally was to make cards that depicted pictures pictures of actual romany because they're called the gypsy cards and yet if you see the you know just a traditional pack of them they, they they depict sort of 19th, 18th, 19th century European life. So one of the things he did in his redesign is depict actual uh, Romani people to, to offer respect to the spirits of the gypsy court. Now, along with this deck that he's designed, he also released a book, and the book is absolutely spectacular. It goes in depth into the interpretation of these cards and the meaning of these cards but it's not just that with the book alone you're getting a compendium of divinatory techniques and insights into the very processes of divination from a experienced seasoned professional reader of the highest caliber i can't say enough about it as a professional reader who many people rely on for accuracy uh I am in a position to identify quality. And I have to say that this book is one of the absolute gems on my bookshelf regarding the art of divination. Uh, He goes through every element of it, including different kinds of spreads, interpretive techniques, combinations, and then really fascinating, a really fascinating astrological spread is there. Uh, I, I 
the book is fantastic. It's it's to me it's sublime. It's a really ma- it's a masterwork. For those people who are interested and used to using the tarot for divination, it's nice to pick up something like the like the gypsy cards as a gunner or the Lenormand, because it is a different style and method of interpretation. And the technique is a wonderful complement to the tarot because the tarot in origin and essence is Mediterranean. It is Italian. It originated in the Middle Ages. And the style of the tarot in its in terms of its representation, as well as in terms of its interpretation, reflects that cultural model. When you're dealing with the the Lenormand or the Zaguner cards, you're entering into a more, uh, in my opinion, a more Germanic style of interpretation. It's straightforward. The The symbols are very simple and clear and direct, and it is excellent for for identifying day-to-day questions, day-to-day issues, answering topics. And the thing about the Zaguna cards in particular is they are specifically designed to address matters amorous, matters romantic. So they have a focus on love. And any professional diviner knows that one of the primary things that people come to you about, come to you asking about is their love life, questions about romance. And this deck is very useful for that. Very, very useful. So I just want to say bravo to Balthazar. He created a masterwork here. It's available through Scarlet Imprint. It is called The Divine Gypsy Mother. I can't say enough about this. I strongly recommend it. Go on over to Scarlet Imprint. This is a limited run edition. So I don't know if they'll be re- releasing it on their Bibliothèque Rouge imprint, which is you know, the more affordable version, because this is a deck and book. And uh, I don't think that Scarlet Imprint has released many decks, maybe one other. So I'm not sure how many more of these are available. I know it's been selling really well, and there's only so many out there. So if you are interested in these subjects, I heartily and strongly recommend uh, acquiring this. Agree 100%. It's a beautiful book, very thorough. The deck is, is awesome. And it is accessible to a beginner as well as a seasoned diviner. Um, you can do a, a simple, you know, simple spread of one to three cards, or you can go really complex. And Balthazar lays out all the details for any way you want to go with, with this deck. There's there's a lot of different um, variety, so highly recommend it. Um, you can also check out Balthazar's YouTube channel where he um, does some example reads and talks about the deck in more detail so uh, definitely take a look at that as well yeah for sure and i just want to give big shout out to our longtime listeners we're so grateful for you thanks for sticking with us through all of this i know sometimes we go deep and i think that that's what people come back to us for but i know sometimes also it might be a tad challenging for people who are unfamiliar with the terminology but if you just do a little bit of research on what we're discussing. Um, it will pay you back in dividends because our entire approach here is to try and open up the the box of treasures for you and you know help you sift through it in the bottom. You never know what you might find, whether it's a brisingaman or a menot. You might you might locate something of great value. So uh, we're grateful for all of you, beginner to adept, who listen to our program. We love every single one of you, and without you, we wouldn't be doing it. Correct. Okay. 
Having said that, thank you everyone for listening and, and we will see you in the next episode. 